We Unitarian Universalists have a habit, for better or worse, of making lists of famous Unitarian Universalists. As the saying goes, we believe in deeds, not creeds, which is part of what prompts us to lift up the lives of our exemplary ancestors. So, uh, you know, to be honest, also, there's a bit of pride in there, right? The, uh, about all the famous people of, oh, John Adams, you know, the second president of the United States, he was a Unitarian, or Clara Barton, she was a Universalist. But occasionally I like to invite us to take a closer look at one of those names and consider questions like, just how you, you were they, really? And sometimes a lot, sometimes not so much. We sometimes claim people who, like, are really famous and went to a UU service once, you know? Uh, what, you know, and what insights, more importantly, might their life have for us today? So this morning, I'd like to invite us to reflect some on the life and the legacy of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Holmes lived to be almost 94 years old. He was born on March 8, 1841, two decades before the Civil War, and he died on March 6, 1935, a few years before the start of the Second World War. He's most famous for being a Supreme Court Justice. On his 90th birthday, a little less than a year before he finally resigned his seat, you know, I'm 90, it's about time to think about retirement, right? Uh, he was hailed at that time as America's most respected man of the law, as well as the best company in Washington. And although in his day, he, maybe that's to damn him with faint praise, right? I don't know. Uh, and although in his day he became the Supreme Court, um, Supreme Court justice that a random citizen on the street, you know, if they asked them, you know, name one Supreme Court justice. In his own day, Oliver Wendell Holmes was one of the first names or only names that people may could name. Maybe also Taft, you know, Taft had been president before becoming chief justice, so they might name Taft, maybe Brandeis, but Holmes was really kind of on the tip of people's tongues of trying to name one of the justices. But despite that, it's interesting to note that few Americans of stature have actually had less contact with the public than Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. In the words of one of his biographers, we should be honest, he was a snob. He did not participate in popular causes, and after he took his seat on the U.S. Supreme Court, he rarely made public speeches. Part of what made him famous, though, was his gift for coming up with these memorable sayings. Um, for one example, he, used, he famously said, you know, I actually really like paying taxes. Uh, I see it as buying civilization. Keep that pro-tax saying in mind. We'll keep it in. Uh, we'll come back to it later. And maybe it also can inspire some of us as we prepare to render unto Caesar in the, in the coming months. For now, though, allow me to turn back the clock and trace just a little bit of the path that led to his renown and consider some of the lessons that we might learn along the way. From a UU perspective, it's interesting to note that Holmes's grandfather was the Reverend Aviel Holmes. He was a very strict Calvinist who actually strongly disapproved of Unitarianism in particular. Indeed, in 1829, where he, he was the minister of First Church Cambridge, Massachusetts, they fired him that year for refusing to exchange pulpits with theologically liberal preachers. They liked him all right, but they wanted to hear from some theological liberals occasionally as well. He wouldn't do it. They fired him. Adding insult to injury around that time, his son, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the father of the justice, became a member of King's Chapel in Boston, which is a Unitarian congregation that became famous in 1785 for keeping the Book of Common Prayer, just removing all the Trinitarian references from it. 
They still do that today. It's a, it's, I think they call themselves um, Anglican in worship, Unitarian in theology, and Congregational in governance. So if you're in Boston, it's an interesting place to visit. That conflict between father and son that had happened between Junior's um, grandfather and his father actually carried on into the next generation. Uh, when Holmes Jr. said he was going to law school, his father told him, why would you go to law school? A lawyer cannot be a great man. Thanks, Dad. Um, uh, the, uh, William James, who was a childhood friend, uh, said there was no love lost between Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Sr. Later in life, when Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was receiving all those 90th birthday honors, he, recall, he still recalled the sharp sting of his father's words and said, I wish that my father could have listened for only two or three minutes tonight. And what you kind of expect him to say is because then he would have seen that he, a lawyer could be a great man and he should be proud of him. That's not what he said. He said, I wish my father could have listened tonight for two or three minutes because then I could have thumbed my nose at him. Yes, I mean that. I mean, this kind of hits me in the heart. That this sort of you know all that he had accomplished in those words from his childhood were still so much with him. As the the saying goes, "Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can really hurt me." It was really true for him. Oliver um, Holmes Sr. was a professor at Harvard Medical School as well as a famous poet. Uh, his literary connections meant that his son grew up around such luminaries as Longfellow, Emerson, Hawthorne, and Melville. As the saying goes, Alexander the Great really did accomplish a lot in his life, but he did have Aristotle as his tutor, right? You know, it was kind of a leg up. In Holmes's case, it mattered that his great-grandfather was Judge Oliver Wendell, his grandfathers were Judge Charles Jackson and the Reverend Abiel Holmes, and that his father was Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr. Indeed, it was Holmes Sr. who literally coined the phrase Boston Brahmin. That's how Boston elite they were. You know, like, literally his father coined the phrase Boston Brahmin. Uh, that being said, Holmes Jr. was brought up to be an elite Boston Brahmin in every way but one. His family of origin was actually not particularly wealthy. They had the right names, the right genealogy. Uh, but they did leverage their historic name and connection to provide uh, cultural and educational and access opportunities for their family. My favorite story from Holmes's childhood is that um, when he was enjoying all those accolades at age 90, the daughter of a former naval recalled, you know, my mother always said, I never really liked that little Holmes boy. He used to hide behind trees, jump out, and yell boo at me. So the lesson here is watch what you do because people may remember it and tell the press more than 80, you know, eight decades later. You know, people have long memories sometimes. The young Holmes, of course, went to college at Harvard. But the first major turning point came when he was 20 and the Civil War started and he enlisted as a private in the Union Army. Fanny Dixon, who knew him before the war and was later married to him for nearly 60 years, said that as far as she could see, it was Holmes's experience as a soldier that saved him from being, in her words, a coxcomb. Now, we've lost that word, but it basically means a vain and conceited man, or what was sometimes called then a dandy. Now, that's not politically correct in 21st century gender politics, but that was the sort of reality of Victorianism at the time. Holmes fought in most of the major campaigns in and around Virginia and Maryland, except for Gettysburg, and that's because he was actually very seriously wounded three times in the war, including once almost mortally. He was shot in the chest. 
The number of casualties he saw impacted his lifelong work, work ethic and ambition. He said that for him, the real anguish was not hard work, which he really did. He didn't retire until almost 91, but it wasn't because he was slacking off. He worked incredibly hard throughout his 80s and his whole life. Uh, he said the real anguish for him was not hard work. It was never having the opportunity. All those lost lives and those lost opportunities really stuck with him. Uh, turning to the question of just how Unitarian was this particular of our uh, famous UU ancestors, well, both his family and Fanny's family were nominally Unitarian. His family, parents had been married at the Unitarian King's Chapel, and he had been christened there as a child, but he and Fanny were actually married in Christ Episcopal Church They didn't uh, in Cambridge. They didn't attend there that frequently, and it may have been for the simple reason that First Unitarian was between ministers at the time, and that the minister at Christ Episcopal school had given a particularly impressive speech at Harvard um, not long before that, so maybe they were looking for him to do the um, wedding. More tellingly, though, Fanny was known to have said, in Boston, one has to be something, and Unitarian is the least one can be. Uh, so, I'm like, thanks for perpetuating stereotypes but uh, that aren't always helpful, but that is what she said. And in reading about Holmes' life, though, the place where I actually see his, Unitar his Unitarianism uh, is much less in theology than in his willingness to be unorthodox about the law. Here's three brief excerpts to give you just a taste of his perspective. He wrote, it is revolting. He did not hold back. He said, it is revolting to have no better reason for a law than that it was laid down at the time of Henry IV. It is still more revolting if the grounds upon which it was laid down have vanished long since, and that the rules simply persist from blind imitation of the past. He also said, certainty is not the test, certitude is not the test of certainty. We have been cocksure of many things that were not so. And to give you just one final example, he said, an ideal system of law should draw its postulates and its legal justification from science. As it is now, we reply, rely upon tradition or vague sentiment or the fact that we just never thought of another way of doing things as our only warrant for rules which we enforce with as much confidence as if they were revealed wisdom. He first began to articulate his jurisprudence in a landmark book called A Common Law, which has been continuously in print since it was first published in 1881. After serving as a lawyer, Holmes was a professor at Harvard Law School for only a, um, in 1883. For most people, that would have been maybe the peak of their career, but that was actually, he served as a professor for only a few months because an opening then appeared of what he really wanted to do, which was to be a judge. An opening opened on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. As a judge, one of his pet peeves was lawyers who were long-winded and judges who wrote lengthy opinions. His own opinions were often surprisingly concise, often just a few paragraphs. And if after a few minutes he had gotten the essence that he, he felt, he may or may not have gotten it, but if he thought he had the essence of a lawyer's argument, the lawyer probably thought he was still taking notes, but anyone that knew Holmes well knew that he had stopped taking notes and started writing personal letters. And here you see the traces of both his brilliance and his arrogance. Uh, that being said, of the 1,290 opinions that he wrote for the court majority of Massachusetts over the next 20 years, one was reversed by the United States Supreme Court. So maybe he was paying enough attention. I don't know. 
1902, President Theodore Roosevelt appointed Holmes to the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, he had many accomplishments at that point, but what really made the difference, the single greatest factor that led to his Supreme Court nomination, is that in the summer of 1884, Holmes had been one of the very few people to publicly stand by his friend Henry Cabot Lodge during a political controversy. And although Holmes didn't know it at the time, it turns out that Lodge never forgave an enemy and he never forgot a friend. So two decades later, Lodge was the one who had Roosevelt's ear and was the one to recommend Holmes as the best nominee for the Supreme Court. Over time, Holmes has been increasingly remembered as a liberal jurist. People seem to remember what could be called occasional civil, civil, civil libertarian outbursts. He would occasionally make these very strong arguments for civil liberties. But if you take in the whole of his decades as a jurist on the Supreme Court, these civil libertarian outbursts were in fact rarer and less libertarian than is often thought. People also seem to remember his support for legislation that promised social and economic reform. There was uh, one time that he sort of spoke out very boldly for labor rights on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. That's part of what attracted him to Roosevelt, which doesn't mean that he always supported labor rights. The truth is that there are many other cases in which he was not particularly concerned with equality. Holmes's record in civil rights cases during his three decades on the Supreme Court was mixed but tended to lean towards support of Southern customs. In general, his judgments were a little more favorable to African Americans regarding civil rights, a little less favorable to African Americans if property rights were involved. Uh, it was said that whereas his fellow Supreme Court justice, um, a more liberal Supreme Court justice, um, Louis Brandeis, had a real heart for the oppressed. He had real empathy for people that were oppressed. Holmes really didn't. He didn't have a sympathy for the oppressed. He did occasionally, though, have contempt for the oppressor. That was who he could do, and really judged people who had power and misused it. Uh, privately, it was also clear that Holmes never sought to be a hero of progressives, what he really wanted to be known as, as a philosopher of the law. There's one final set of cases I want to be sure to mention. World War I lasted a little more than four years, from 1914 to 1918. Toward the end of the war in 1917, Congress passed the Espionage Act, both to protect military secrets, to prevent obstruction of military recruitment and operations. Uh, that's some of what, like, Edward Snowden is in trouble. You know, that, that's, the Espionage Act is still with us. But a lot of people thought it didn't go far enough in the midst of wartime. So in, in 1918, Congress passed the Sedition Act, aimed at suppressing any dissent to the war with heavy fines and with years of jail time. And so that was for if you discouraged recruitment of the war, if there were any utterances of disloyal language about the government, about conduct of the war, about the Constitution, about the flag, even about the uniform, you would face heavy fines and jail time. Uh, almost 2,000 U.S. citizens were prosecuted under two laws, under those two laws, simply for speeches, for books, for newspaper articles, for pamphlets being handed out. One U.S. attorney estimated that at least 90% of sort of around that, of these alleged pro-German plot, plots never existed. It's kind of like McCarthyism. Those were the circumstances in which Holmes, in March uh, 1919, there were about five or six free speech cases that came before the Supreme Court related to the Espionage Act and particularly the Sedition Act. Uh, so in March 1919, the first of these came forward, and Holmes was among the unanimous set of jurists who 
uh, ruled in Schenck versus the United States. And uh, Holmes wrote for the majority and penned some of history's most famous words against freedom of speech and for repressing freedom of speech. I'll read just a few of them. He wrote, the most stringent prote protection of free speech would not protect a man from falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. So he had that real gift for coming up with analogies like that. The problem is he used it for evil in this case. Uh, and that we all remember that. We don't remember all the people who were wrongly jailed and fined um, using that analogy. To read you just two more sentences, he said, the question in every case is whether the words are used in circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. And while I, again, admire the brilliance of Holmes's prose, I think he was wrong to criminalize U.S. citizens who were merely distributing flyers or speaking out with alternative perspectives to the loud drumbeat to war. Fascinatingly, Holmes was also conflicted about his opinion in Shank, thought a lot about it, read a lot, talked to a lot of people, and in the wake of further study of, um, and debates, less than a year later, in November 1919, he did change his mind, as Laura talked about earlier. He wrote a dissent joined by Brandeis in Abrams versus the United States that became one of the most quoted justifications for freedom of expression in the English-speaking world. Uh, I'll give you just a little bit of that. The ultimate good desired is better reached by the free trade of ideas. That the best test of truth is the power of thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. We should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions, even those that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death, unless they so eminently threaten immediate interference with the law and the pressing purpose of the law that an immediate check is required to save the country. Now, at that time, he was a majority, a minority of the Supreme Court saying that. But as the fever of war began to break, Holmes's more considered defense of free speech would ultimately come to have a prominent place in American constitutional history. He was vindicated in cases such as 1969's Brandenburg versus Ohio, where we got this uh, imminent lawless action test. So, so you can basically say what you want unless it's going to inspire imminent lawless action. There's one other significant case that we've not addressed. Some of you may know Buck versus Bell in 1927. It's arguably the most egregiously wrong majority opinion that Holmes ever wrote but I'm setting it aside because it will, it will be a bridge to my sermon for next week. So same time, same channel, uh, you'll hear more about that. Uh, for now, I want to briefly turn to the end of Holmes's life. In 1929, after almost 60 years of marriage, Holmes's beloved Fanny died, and Holmes was devastated. Fascinatingly, instead of a, a Unitarian minister stepping in to help the, uh, the, his fellow Unitarian on the Supreme Court, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, uh, made the memorial arrangements. Among many things that were true about Taft, it was said that Taft knew how to run a Unitarian funeral. Uh, as some of you may know, in between serving uh, as the 27th President of the United States um, and the 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, in between doing those two things, Taft had been President of the Unitarian National Conference for 10 years, as well as Vice President of the American Unitarian Association um, for uh, six years. Needless to say, a future sermon forthcoming on Taft. But returning our focus to Holmes, in 1931, two years after Fanny's death, less than two months before his 91st birthday, he did finally resign from the Supreme Court. 
In his final few years, I'm always interested to see, you know, people that have been so actively involved in their work life, do they continue to follow it? He didn't. He felt like he had done his time. In his final few years, he kept himself occupied, some with nonfiction, primarily philosophy and history, but also with what he described as a new consuming weakness for detective novels, including Agatha Christie and Daniel Hammert. And on March 6, 1935, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. died of bronchial pneumonia two days before what would have been his 94th birthday. His funeral was held uh, on his birthday at All Souls Church Unitarian here in Washington, D.C., just about 45 minutes from here. Now, to get back to that um, Holmesian aphorism of, I really like paying taxes. I use it to buy civilization. Uh, he wasn't joking. He and Fanny had never had children, so after making a few small bequests to servants and to a nephew, he left a little more than a quarter of a million dollars to the United States government without explanation, not something that has frequently been done before or since. Congress didn't know what to do, so they did what Congress does. They appointed a study committee and uh, eventually recommended that the funds should be used to produce a definitive multi-volume history of the United States Supreme Court. To date, uh, to date 10 large volumes have been produced, um, and uh, three additional volumes are currently in the works that'll take us up through the Warren Court in 1969. These are like $250 vol reference volumes that are uh, true doorstops. Uh, and, in reflecting on the life and legacy of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., I'm inviting us to just wrestle some with the messiness, with the complexity that is the reality of his or any other person's life. And despite his flaws and with an awareness of the times that he helped perpetuate an unjust status quo through either his action or inaction, there were times when Holmes stepped forward and acted decisively to create a more just world, both in his own day and to create ripples that continue to reverberate even into our own time. And so the question arises for us, too, within our sphere of influence, individually and together, how might we act for peace and justice in the days to come? Will we allow our privileges, whatever they are, to blind us, as they sometimes did homes, to people that are different? Or will we increasingly see that we are one? We are all part of one human family. What will our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, what will they say about the legacy that they inherit from us?